Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Crossroads Church Podcast. We are from CrossroadsColorado.com, and we are located in Loveland, Colorado, just about an hour north of Denver, and it's so good to be with you. And today, Pastor Dennis is picking up part three of the series, Love You. And so if you could look at the graphic of this series, it looks like Love University, L-U-V with a U. And speaking of that, go to CrossroadsColorado.com slash gather and you will see our resources page. Now, I went ahead and linked this in your show notes also, but that's where you're going to access all kinds of things like our connect card, where you could let us know that you are here, drop your information down if you'd like to connect with somebody. It doesn't matter if you live near or far. We love to know who's here and who is connecting with us. And you can be part of our network and part of our community. You will also find the notes to the message. You can look up PDF notes. You can look up notes that you want to fill in yourself. Keep in mind, those show notes change each week on the link. You'll also find a link of ways to give. As you're part of this growing community, it's fun to get behind the vision. And our Adventure is Worth It initiative. So you may want to access the links to give and participate. So here's Dennis with part three of Love University. Good to see everybody today. Thank you. Thank you. That's good to see everybody. You know, a woman was walking along the beach one day and she uh, found this vase buried in the sand. And she picks it up and it's beautiful and she starts rubbing it. And guess what comes out? A genie. That's right. A genie comes out and says to this woman, Hey, I will give you any three wishes. And, ooh, that's pretty cool. He says, But know this. Whatever you ask for, I'm going to go do double for your ex-husband. So she thought, oh, I've always wanted a beach house with some private beach property. What about right here? And the genie goes, poof. And up on the bluff is this beautiful beach house. And right down here, she, the genie says, this is all yours. And poof, right next door, double the size of the beach house, double the beachfront property. And her husband is standing on the deck, ex-husband, just kind of... He goes, what do you want for wish number two? She said, I've always wanted a big boat, a big boat. And so, poof, out into the ocean goes this pier and this beautiful, sleek, 32-foot yacht. And, you guessed it, poof, right next to her, another pier, 64-foot yacht. Husband standing on the yacht, waving again. And she said, I get three wishes, right? You're going to double everything I ask for. Okay, she said, scare me half to death. <laughs> Not very loving. Not very loving. Sometimes it's hard to do the loving thing, isn't it? Especially when it's towards someone we don't like or someone that might not reciprocate or someone who we think is a little above us or they think they're a little above us. 
Sometimes it's really hard. How many of you uh, uh, secretly go, yes, when somebody in that spot like stumbles a little bit or fails a little bit? I know you won't admit it, but any Tom Brady fans in the audience? Any anti-Tom Brady fans? Yeah. How many of you uh, last, su- last Saturday or Sunday when Brady lost and the Buccaneers got beat out? How many of you were happy about that? Oh my, you unloving people. You're in the right place today. I had a friend, I had a friend texted me, down goes Brady. Actually, I texted him, down goes Brady. He texted me back, yeah, too bad, Brady, hurrah. Not very loving. I don't always do the loving thing. Do you? Do you? Sometimes it's hard to do the loving thing because I'm not quite sure what the loving thing is, right? Much of the, much of the hard work, this is your first fill-in if you want this, and wisdom of becoming a loving person is to first figure out what the loving response is and then have the courage to do it. I was uh, in a conversation with my son. Uh, this was just this last year. And uh, we were talking about the whole topic of abortion. And we went around and around and around. And then he said this. He said, Dad, I wish Jesus would have said more about abortion. And that got to thinking about all the topics and issues and kinds of people we deal with these days um, where we thought, I wish Jesus would have said more about that. Do you ever think that? I mean, in your program notes and on the screen. I wish Jesus had said more about, what is it? Think about that for a minute. Got it? I made my little list here. I wish Jesus would have said more about abortion, role of government, politics, sexuality, immigration, capital punishment, economic equity, war, raising teenagers, (laughs) how to treat Las Vegas Raider fans. I wish Jesus would have said more about these things. And we often think, if Jesus had said more, I could be more loving. Maybe. Just maybe the reason Jesus didn't say more about these issues is because he knew we would develop a whole system of we always do that and we never do that, which would lead us to becoming actually less loving. When we have to wrestle with the complexity of circumstances and gray areas and motives and justice, and mercy, and grace, and actually have to listen to each other, that's actually the grist of what helps us become more loving people. And that's why this section in 1 Corinthians 13 is so important, because it lays out an approach towards loving others that's absolutely essential, especially in those situations where we're not quite sure what the loving thing is. Ryan said this last week, our responses, our loving responses are often on a continuum from egoism, it's all about me, to altruism, it's really all about you. And I have to confess right here, I've never been on the complete end of that altruistic scale. I've never had a pure motive for very long. Have you? Have you? The whiffum factor is always in there for me. You know, the whiffum factor, what's in it for me? Well, we're in week three, as has been mentioned, of our Love University series, where we're looking at one of the most popular chapters of the Bible, right? 1 Corinthians 13. 
It was written by the Apostle Paul. It was really a letter to a group of people in Corinth that was the largest and most strategic city in Greece at the time. And the church was trying to learn to get along, make a difference in the world, and they just weren't doing it very well. And so Paul writes this letter to these people to guide and encourage and correct them. He addresses 11 different issues in 1 Corinthians where there's competition and conflict and flaunted sexuality and lots of egoism. And the main issue Paul addresses right here in this section is that there, in 1 Corinthians there's a rampant virus of spiritual superiority and consequently inferiority. And in week one, we looked at the counterfeits of love and why counterfeits are so dangerous. And last week, we looked at the description of genuine love, what love is and isn't. And so today, we're going to look at the persistence of love and how we can continue to pursue a caliber love that never, ever fails, especially in those situations where we're not quite sure what the loving response is. So our section today is 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. I'm going to read it. It's on the screens. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I read that, to be honest, the first phrase just trips me. You know, it sets off that little skeptical voice in the back of my mind. You know the voice. Love never fails. Yeah, but... You have the voice? Yeah, but... The phrase literally means love never falls. It's never defeated. It never comes to an end. Never becomes invalid. Lasts forever. This is my favorite. Love is never deprived of its force. Yeah, but... Right? Kicks in. Yeah, but I can think of situations where love does seem to fail. Uh, sometimes when you've tried to create a better uh, spirit of teamness and, and cooperation at work, and you go out of your way to help a colleague with a particular project, not, it's, it's not your project, it's that person's project, and you help them and you spend hours, and then the project succeeds, and the colleague takes all the credit and all the commission check. Love fails. Is it, is it failing? There's still that same competitive cutthroat spirit. Or maybe we try and try to try to help our kids or our grandkids of just exercise some simple generosity or, or kindness. And all we get back is rolled eyes, snotty attitude, and uh, more cold distance between us. I mean, some parents and kids I know have been estranged from each other for years and decades. It might be you. And you've tried, or maybe you've tried to love, and it just seems like there's no global warming in your universe. Love seems to have failed. And for Paul and the Corinthians, after this wonderful vision of what love is and the importance of it for healthy communities and families and churches, in this book alone, Paul spends 16 chapters trying to help them. And then there's the second book of 2 Corinthians that we have. Another 13 chapters of the same similar things. And then between 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote another letter which wasn't preserved for us. It's 
He mentions it in 2 Corinthians 2.4 where he writes to them, as it turned out, there was pain enough just in writing that letter. More tears than ink on the parchment. But I didn't write it to cause pain. I wrote it so you would know how much I care. Oh, more than care, how much I love you. And it's often called the painful letter or the tearful letter. Because there's a group of people in Corinth that continue to think of themselves as superior to Paul. They call themselves the super apostles. They resented Paul. Because Paul would often talk about his weaknesses and struggles. And after all, we all know genuine Christ followers, we never struggle. We don't have any weaknesses. They chided Paul because he wouldn't take a salary from them. And we all know that, you know, if you get paid to be a pastor, you're obviously more spiritual than the rest of you. They believed that they had God all dialed in and that what they taught about God was the absolute, absolute capital T truth. Love certainly seems to be failing between Paul and the Corinthians. They hammered Paul because he didn't exhibit the spiritual gifts that they had put in the category of the super spiritual gifts, which Paul mentions in verse 8. Prophecies, tongues, knowledge. Ryan explained what those were in week one of the series. And then Paul gives two reasons in verse 8 why an attitude of superiority is so foolish and so damaging. And the two reasons are especially applicable when we drift towards the ego end of the altruism spectrum. When we begin to think of ourselves that we're all that and others are not quite all that. Or we think of ourselves as not quite all that because we think others are all that. To feel superior or inferior requires comparison. And most all, most comparison wounds, if not all. And here's two reasons why feeling superior is so damaging and foolish. For one, Paul says, some of these gifts that you have, they're temporary. In verse 8, it says, these prophecies, this inspired speech, these wonderful sermons you're giving, they're going to end one day. This praying in tongues, which the Corinthians thought was actually the language of angels, Paul says, they're going to go silent. This special knowledge, this insight and understanding that you also value. He says you're writing books about it. You're traveling all over the country on speaking tours. You're, you're becoming a consultant. Uh, you, you're just waiting for somebody to call you so you can turn on the spigot of your knowledge and drip some of your unbelievable knowledge into the lives of other people. That's what's happening. And Paul reminds them, you know what? All, all of these things, at least these three things, someday they're going to stop. They're going to become obsolete. We, we, we know what that means, right? How many of you know what this is? What is it? It's a VHS tape, isn't it? Tape. Whoa, I used the word tape, right? How many of you had shelves of these? Yeah, I paid $1,200 for my first VCR player. 1200 and I found this in my drawer this morning. I mean, I still have some of these. <laughs> then came what? The DVD. Oh, man, we thought we'd died and gone to heaven, right? I mean, look at this. You talk about ease. This little disc, blah, blah, blah. How many of you still have tons of these? When was the last time you actually watched one? Yeah, because now what happened? Then we got this, right? Netflix. It took a remote. Now we don't even need that, right? Hey, Alexa, 
You know, dial up the movie. Well, I tell you, I paid $1,200 for my first VCR to make the point that don't get too invested in some of the things that are going on right now because they're going to end. And what Paul's saying is some of these gifts that you all think is all that, one day they're not even going to be of any use anymore. Now, they can be fine and good for the time, right? VCRs were wonderful till the new thing came along. Then DVDs till the new thing came along. And, and Paul says here, completeness is coming. Wholeness is coming. So don't get too attached to those things that you have. Here's the second reason. All gifts are limited. And the NIV says, we know, but in part. We only have a piece of the picture. We can know a lot, but no matter how much we know, it's still only a part. I love uh, the message translation of verse 8. We know only a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. So here's the point. Love fails when the one doing the loving is not transformed by their own actions of love. That's what's happening in Corinth. Because these people are so full of themselves and feeling so superior to others, they've sealed themselves off from the transforming power of the very love that they're trying to communicate. It's not that they might not even be effective, but it's not transforming them. And so in that sense, love is failing. Let me put it in a positive way. Love never fails when the one doing the loving continues to be transformed by their actions of love. Why does it work this way? I mean, why is love? Think of just the whole topic of love the most transformational force in the universe. Why is love the overarching theme of the Bible? Why is love the overarching theme of music? I mean, think of how many songs there are throughout history where love, or some aspect of it, is the topic. Country music. I mean, if the one that left the relationship came back and the bar closed there would be no country music. <laughs> Why is love the most sought-after experience on the planet? The description of love that from the first part of the chapter, love is patient, kind, not self-seeking, not easily angered, doesn't force itself on others, doesn't keep score is delighted when something good and true happens, puts up with anything, always looks for the best, trusts God, never quits. Who doesn't want to be the recipient of that kind of love? Famous foreigner song from a couple of years ago, like two decades ago, I want to know what love is and what's the next line, and I want you to show me. Who doesn't want that kind of love? But the hard part is giving that kind of love. We want it. How do we do it? And the reason why love is so, such a central issue in human history is because at the center of all reality is God. And at the center of the nature of God is love. First John says, God is love. God is love. And then Paul says, that kind of love never fails because it's at the center of the universe. A little boy came home from school one day and uh, had, they were studying the solar system. 
And he asked mom, because he'd been looking at the maps. He goes, mom, what holds the earth in place? It's just spinning out there. Mom said, you know, son, uh, you don't see him, but there's this invisible guy named Atlas, and he's holding the world up. And that was good. He went away. Oh, that makes sense. He comes back a month later and says, Mom, if Atlas is holding up the world, what's Atlas standing on? She says, Honey, uh, he's standing on a giant turtle. And he goes away and that works for about a week. He comes back and says, Mom, if the world's held up by Atlas and Atlas is standing on a turtle, what's the next question? What's the turtle standing on? And she said, honey, he's standing on a giant elephant. And he comes right back and says, what's the elephant standing on? And she said, honey, it's elephant all the way down. And with God, it's love all the way down. Because at the very center of the very nature of God is love. And that's why Paul says at the very end of this chapter, when it's all said and done, it's our theme verse, right? Our anchor verse. Three things last forever, ever, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. John Eldridge writes, there are three great forces of human existence, faith, hope, and love. By saying they last forever, God names these three as immortal powers. These things aren't simply virtues. They are mighty forces meant to carry your life forward and upward. They are your wings and the strength to use them. Love never fails because at the center of the nature of God is love. And there's something in the very fabric, in the very bedrock of all reality that not only runs on the fuel of love, but is at its essence and substance love. And that's why when Paul describes love, every human, on the being line, every human being on the planet lines up and says, I want some of that. I need, I need, I need that. I need somebody's patience. I need somebody's forgiveness. I need, that's the kind of love I want. My, my family needs this. My church needs this. My community, my country, our world needs that. So what does this mean? You know, love never fails. What does it mean for our normal, everyday, peacemaking lives? We cannot give what we do not have. So we cannot love in ways that we haven't been loved. And that's why in 1 John 4, 19, it says we love. We can love because we've first been loved. Because God first loved us. We're empowered to love others in the way that we've been loved. And if we can't get it from a human being, and many times we cannot, we can get it from God. And then it can flow through us to another person. A good friend of mine gave me a gift for Christmas. He says, hey, I'm going to meet you. I want to give you this gift. And so he gave it to me, and I could tell, he, it was all wrapped up, uh, that it was a picture, you know, some kind of a picture, because I could feel the frame. And I didn't open it in his presence. And, uh, and when he gave it to me, he said, you know, obviously it's a picture. He says, but here's the question. <laughs> if you had to pick a single experience, a single story, or a single uh, incident out of the Bible that would sort of summarize it all, what would you pick? And my instant response is, well, it would, be, it would have to be a story that reveals the nature of God the close, the, with the most clarity. And then I said, then it's going to have to be something to do with Jesus. Because Jesus is the picture, the image, the metaphor, actually the demonstration of the very nature of God. 
as close as we have. And I didn't give him an answer, and I went home, and then I opened the picture, and it was this. This is what it was. Some of you might recognize this. It's coming up here. There it is. Anybody recognize it? It's Rembrandt's famous painting called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And the original painting is actually in a museum in Russia, St. Petersburg. And it's actually eight feet tall. I mean, this thing is massive and six feet wide. And so the figures in the picture are life-size almost. And Henry Nouwen, a Catholic priest who died a number of years ago, sat in front of the painting for two full days, taking notes, copying. And then he wrote a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son, which I highly recommend. It's a powerful book. So I've been, so I went home and I opened the, the picture, and, yeah, and that picture was this, and, and I had this book and I'd read it, so I've been rereading it. I'm almost finished it again. And as I've thought about this, I thought, you know what, if there was a picture, one picture, and I had to pick one that would best describe the nature of God, the person of Jesus, it's this. And I thought about it, I thought, you know what, it's not just a picture of 1 Corinthians 13. It's a picture of the whole book of 1 Corinthians. It's a picture of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a picture of what really happened on the cross. It's a picture of the resurrection of Jesus. It's a picture of all that goes on in our life together. That picture happened this morning. It's happening this morning. It's happening in this room. It's going to happen in the atrium. It's going to happen in our community. That's the picture. Look at the prodigal son for a moment. Close up a little bit. We've all been the son or daughter that leaves home, haven't we? Walks away from God. We've taken some of the gifts that God's given us and wasted them. And some of them actually wasted us. We've all wondered if the father would have us back. We've all tried to make deals. God, if you'll do this, then I'll do that. And then we wonder when we actually get into the presence of God, what will God's response be? And then we ha that happens, and in some mysterious, unbelievably wonderful way, when we meet God, we meet Jesus, he says to us, all that doesn't matter. We're having a party. You were, you were dead, and now you're alive. We must party. We must throw a party. And we know in those moments, uh, it, it can't be. It can't be that, that good. Really? That, God's that forgiving? I was listening to a radio commentator one time. He said, he says, I could never be a Christian because Christianity is too forgiving. Look at the elder brother for a moment. In the actual story, the elder brother isn't standing in the same room, right? We never see this picture. But, but because of the conversation, it's this, the fact that the father receives the younger son home, that the elder brother has the problem. In the actual story in the Bible, which is in Luke 15, uh, the younger son comes home. The father, because of his spontaneous love, it just makes sense. We're throwing a party. It, may, it didn't make any sense for the father to think about, oh, what about the older son? He didn't think about that. It's like, we're throwing a party, and everybody's going to want to come because what was dead is alive. What was lost is now found. And the older brother gets near enough, hears the goings on, and he isn't about to come to the party. So what does the loving, caring father do? He goes out to the older brother as well. Same grace, same mercy, and says, come to the party. Come to the party. 
And the older brother will have none of it. He not only refuses the father's love, but he's infuriated and scandalized when his father has the audacity to love another human being like that. Because in his mind, that is the height of stupidity to love someone like that. The Corinthian church is full of older brothers and sisters. We've been this person. I know I have. I can't tell you how many times I thought, that person, loved by God, uh, they don't seem to be repentant enough. They continue to do that thing. How can, how can they think they're a follower of Christ when they continue to do fill in the blank, that? Or, really? I, I don't know. I don't think they've suffered enough. I don't think they've paid enough. Will you look at that kind of spirit as I look at myself? What I'm actually doing is telling God who and how he should love. There's a little arrogance, huh? You talk about, I'm going to tell God. I'm going to tell the God of the universe. I'm going to tell Jesus how he ought to love people and who and how to do it. And then I got to thinking, sometimes, Dennis, you're actually the older brother of the older brother. You're judgmental of people who are really judgmental. We only see in part, friends. Now we only have a part of it. The older brother thought he had the whole picture. He thought he knew the father. He'd drawn all of his own conclusions about the nature of the father, how he ought to run the family, how the father ought to distribute justice and equity and love. And the father, look at the father, absolutely shocks both sons. Neither of them has the father figured out. Neither of them has ever seen this depth of love. Neither of them predicted this kind of love. Neither of them understood at that some level even accepted this kind of love for themselves or other people. Why is that? Well, because 1 Corinthians 13, 9 says, because we now only see part of the picture. What we say about God is always incomplete until wholeness comes. And how do we, how do we live into this then? What should we aspire to be? Love never fails because in me because I will always be transformed when I extend God's love to others. I may never see the impact of God's love on that person's life, not the point. But when I allow the Spirit of God in me to love another person, I will be transformed in the process. Love never fails to transform the person who's doing the loving if it's genuine love. It's a wonderful thing. Now I had a conversation with one of his friends one day who knew all about his experience with this painting and his book, and she said to him, whether you are the younger son or the elder son, you have to realize that you are called to become the father. You've been looking for friends all your life. You've been interested in thousands of things. You've been begging for attention, appreciation, and affirmation right and left. The time has come to claim your true vocation, to be a father who can welcome his children home without asking them any questions and without wanting anything from them in return. Look at the father in your painting and you will know who you are called to be. We need you to be a father who can claim for himself the authority of true compassion. 
And when I read that in, in this book, I thought, I think that's what I'm called to. And I think that's what we're all called to. It's to claim the authority of true compassion and learn to get into that. What is God inviting us into today? Well, the world and the church is full of younger brothers. You know what? Sometimes I come on a Sunday and I'm the younger brother. And the world and the church is full of older brothers. I think sometimes it's harder to come back from being an older brother or a sister than it is from sort of squandering our lives. Because we think we're right. We think The problem is we think we're always right. That's the problem. So what's God inviting us into today? Well, the world most needs is us to become, or at least aspire to become, fathers and mothers who can claim for ourselves the authority of true compassion. It's what you need, don't you? Someone to say when you're the younger brother, it's all right. Come home, no questions asked. You might have some consequences to deal with, but you're home. We'll figure that stuff out. Church is full of older brothers who are, and sisters who are willing to stand around and point at that church or that church or that person or that group of people and say, well, no, nope, nope, God's, God's love doesn't extend there. Nope. You know what? They're, they're, they think they're following Jesus, but they're not. You want to really know how to follow Jesus? Hear that sounds? You want to know how to follow Jesus? Look at Jesus, right? He's the best. How do we develop the authority of true compassion? How do we do that? Four quick things. First of all, cultivate healthy humility. Just always go, you know what, Dennis? I don't have the whole picture. Neither do you. I don't know at all. I can be somewhat confident about some of the things I know, but even that I have to hold with an open hand because there might be something new coming that will influence how I think about that. I like another Henry Nouwen quote. It takes a lot of humiliation to create a little humility. It's true, isn't it? Or this quote, humility isn't thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. That's humility. Number two, appreciate mystery. Rather than letting what I don't know intimidate me, let it stimulate me. Rather than letting what I don't know give me a sense of inferiority so that I have to guard what I know so closely so people think I'm in the know. It's all right not to know some things, isn't it? It feeds back into humility. Sometimes it's okay to say, you know what? That is a good question. I don't know. I don't know. I've never thought about that before. Appreciate mystery. Engage people in ideas and cultures and even views that are different than ours. When I was in graduate school, seminary, I took this series of classes called Systematic Theology, the Systematic Study of God. And I probably wrote, I don't know, 200 pages of papers for these four classes. And one day we were studying the, the topic of the death of Jesus. And I got to thinking, what kind of death can an eternal being actually experience? And then I thought, what kind of death can God experience? just seems, how does someone who's immortally alive experience death? So anyway, I was thinking about this, and I, I thought, well, I'm going to go in and talk to my professor. And the professor of this class hap is, is one of the, you know, 
biggest scholars, brilliant in the world. His name's J.I. Packer. I looked it up. He wrote and published 165 books. Guy was amazing, brilliant. And so when I went in to talk to him about this, I felt a little intimidated. It's like, I'm going to go talk to this guy about this. But I really was wrestling. And so I went in and we had this conversation and he's from England. And we went around and around and talked about it for about 30 minutes, 35 minutes. And finally he looked up at me and he pushed back from his desk a little bit and he looked over the top of his reading glasses and he said, Dennis, and that's a fancy way of saying, I don't know and neither do you. It's a mystery. <laughs> what we don't know about God is way more than what we do know about God. And that should create some gratitude for mystery and sometimes it creates this sense of some things I need to unknow in order to know something else. And when you try to unknow some things, it creates this emotional, like little bit of a roller coaster. And I kind of want to drift back to what I know to be sure. And yet I know that maybe there's something else out here. And so appreciating mystery helps me be kind to myself when I'm in that spot. Number three, laugh at ourselves. Laugh at ourselves. Sometimes we just take ourselves far too seriously, don't we? Don't we? We ask... A number of years ago, I was having a conversation with my wife. I, we'd had a little snit. I know you don't have these, but we'd had a little thing. And my response is to pout, right? So I just kind of withdraw and get real quiet. I'm cordial and civil, but I've learned to be very sophisticated in my anger. And um, I said, hey, honey, can we talk about this? She goes, yeah. And so I began to kind of lay out, this is, you know, communication 101. This is what you did. This is how I felt. This is what you did, how I felt. This is what I did, this is how you felt. And as I'm going along in the conversation, she just starts to grin, and then she starts to laugh. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm pouring my heart out here, and you're laughing at me? And then she says to me, Dennis, do you realize we've had this very conversation a hundred times? And I thought, I started to grin, and I started laughing. We have, we have. If you'd stop doing it, if you'd stop doing this, we wouldn't have to have this conversation. No, I didn't say that. But it was one of those moments where a very serious conversation, I began to realize, you know what, I'm just taking myself and this whole thing far too seriously. Just laugh, laugh at ourselves. And I've also learned this, if someone is irritating you, uh, if you, rather than let them annoy you, let them amuse you. But don't laugh in their face, because that just makes them more irritating. So, but just, you know, some people take themselves far too seriously too. And humility, mystery, laugh at ourselves, and number four, Give people the gracious assumption. The gracious assumption. Brene Brown in her book, Rising Strong, was asked this question by her therapist when they were talking about an experience that Brene had had where she felt like she'd been really mistreated by someone. She'd, uh, she'd had a speaking engagement and she had uh, been, um, you know, the woman that was hosting her had just tried to put her down at every spot, and it really bugged Brene Brown. And so she was talking with her therapist about this. And her therapist asked her at some point in the conversation, do you believe in general that people are doing the best that they can? What do you think? And Brene, she didn't say this, but in her book she wrote, what do I think? I think this conversation is total crap. I think the idea that people are doing the best they can is also crap. I can't believe I'm paying for this conversation. And this really bothered Brene. 
because she knew that the therapist actually believed it. She knew that the therapist functioned assuming and giving people the gracious assumption that no matter who they are, no matter what the situation, that person is doing the best that they can. And when I've thought about that question, I've said, I don't think so, because I know I don't always do the best that I can. And when I was talking to a spiritual director one day about this, she commented to me, Dennis, uh, let, me, let me press on that a little. Even in the situations where you think you're doing, where you don't think you're doing the best you can, maybe, maybe in those situations, given those circumstances, you really are. Brene was really bothered by this, so she went home later and, uh, and talked to her husband about it. Her husband, Steve, he's a pediatrician, and he knows. I mean, he knows people. He sees the best and worst in people. And Steve said this, because she asked him, Steve, do you think people are doing the best they can? And Steve says, I don't know. I really don't. All I know is that my life is better when I assume that people are doing their best. It keeps me out of judgment, the older brother, and lets me focus on what is and not on what should or could be. And that's what love does. That's what love does. That's what God's love, when we've been loved by God, then we can love people the way we've been loved. Jesus tells all kinds of stories about this. We can forgive because we've been forgiven. And when we, when we are the recipients of this kind of love from God, we can get better at loving those that are easy to love, at those who are difficult to love, and even those that we find impossible to love. Love never fails because I will always be transformed as I extend God's love to others. Amen? On your Connect card, there's a couple of responses. If you want to take a look at those, uh, one of them is just to read 1 Corinthians 13 every day this week. Just, just read it through. You know, God, what phrase do you want me to sort of think about today? Just a phrase, a few words. And then another part of a, on your Connect card is a, a box that says, hey, I'd, I'd be open to hosting a Connect group. And a Connect group is basically a place where we share life together. Not necessarily a Bible study. It might involve some of that. Um, but it's us relating to each other. You know, it's that, that love thing that we want and we want to learn how to do that really happens best in a group of people who are sort of doing that together. We like to say in a group, you can love and be loved, serve and be served, know and be known, celebrate and be celebrated. And we're going to be starting some of these, some more of these in the coming weeks or so. If you'd be interested in hosting one, maybe you never have, that's all right. We'll give you some help. Um, but just on that connect box, go, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to further the love quotient at Crossroads. Um, I'm going to step out and do this. We're going to do a song uh, right now, and it's called Build My Life. And uh, one line in it is, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And lead me in your love to those around me. As we build our lives on this foundation, it enables us and empowers us to love. Let's do the song.
pray. Lord, thank you. Uh, what, what a promise. Thank you for those of us who are in the room or watching that, you know, we're, we're feeling far. We're feeling, wonder if, can I really come back again and again and again? And like the father or grandfather that throws the kid up in the air again, again, yes, again. And God, I pray that we would love people like that, no matter what. Teach us, lead us, and uh, we'll walk into this week knowing that you're going to put people in our lives who need this kind of love from you through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat for a second. I got a couple things. We're going to receive our offering, so if our auditorium hosts would, would come and...